I would be up on the mountain looking down at base camp and it was just this beautiful rolling meadow at 15,000 feet and there were nothing on it but yaks and a sea of wildflowers. And I would just see it stretching in all directions and every once in a while like you'd see some kind of lake that was hit. I mean, it was an undul it was undulating. So you could see like a lake hiding in, in a crevice or something. And finally I was like, you know, I'd much rather be running down around, you know, this plateau that the base camp is on, exploring that than, you know, going up and down this stupid mountain. <laughs> This is the Adventure Sports Podcast, brought to you by 180TAC. Get out there and have some fun. Episode 263, I talked to Dina Mishev about adventuring through cancer and multiple sclerosis. Hey, have you dropped by our ASP member deals site yet? If not, what are you waiting for? There are some great discounts in there for everything adventure. Some podcasts ask you to donate through sites like Patreon or PayPal, but we wanted to provide you with something in return for your support of our show. So we launched the ASP Member Deals site for you to get great discounts from our partner vendors. It's easy and you can become a show sponsor for less than 5 bucks a month. Would you do me a favor and check it out? It's members.adventuresportspodcast.com. Thanks guys in advance and now on with the show. Welcome back to another episode of the Adventure Sports Podcast. This is Travis. On the line with me today is Dina Mishev. Dina is a 20-year resident of Jackson Hole, Wyoming. Um, she is an all-around uh, inspiring adventurer because Dina has, when she moved to Jackson, she's become an accomplished skier, but at the same time, she was also dealing with uh, stage three breast cancer as well as depression and multiple sclerosis. So, uh, I wanted to talk to Dina and get her story and get a little bit of uh, inspiration for you guys to see how she made it through it because she's uh, she's got a fascinating story and she's obviously managed to to pull through all of this uh, you know the adversity that she's been handed to really live a life of adventure and she's kept a uh, a strong mind on her shoulders uh, you know to to do this all so I wanted to talk to Dina so Dina first of all welcome to the show hey thanks Travis thanks for that introduction I don't recognize that person <laughs> <laughs> well let's sound so good let's dig her up well i was reading on you and i think uh everything i read was was truthful so from what i understand uh you have managed to conquer everything that's been thrown at you and keep on persevering and i think there is a, a tremendous amount of inspiration in your story so let's jump into it for starters Let's get into a little bit of background on you. Um, like I said, about 20 years ago, you moved to Jackson Hole. So what was your life leading up to that? Were you an adventurous person before getting out there? Um, yes. I, always, I was always good at coming up with harebrained ideas and doing whatever I had to, to do them. For mm -hmm. like when <clears throat> I, I graduated from high school, the usual thing, I went to high school in Maryland, and the usual thing was to go down to Beach Week at Ocean City and party all week and everything. And that wasn't, that was, you know, not that exciting to myself and my best friend. So we, I don't know how we talked our parents into letting two 17-year-old girls do this by themselves at that time. But we talked them into letting us go on a three-week road trip, and we drove up Route 1 
up the East Coast um, to Maine and then took the ferry over to Canada. So I was always adventurous in terms of, you know, not being afraid to, you know, follow through with some of the crazier ideas that I've had. Mm -hmm. Um, But I definitely was not as outdoorsy as I was not having the outdoorsy adventures that I have today. Okay. Well, I mean, you adventures up the East Coast as a as a couple of young girls. That's a in and of itself. That's enough to uh, to call it an adventure adventurous lifestyle. So, what brought you? What did you? What made you decide to to move to Jackson in the first place? Um, I knew Harrison Ford lived here. <laughs> Fair <laughs> enough. <laughs> no, so um, I in college I studied. Um, math, computer programming, statistics, and economics with the plan to become an economist. But then my senior year, I worked at the Federal Reserve Bank of Chicago and realized I did not want to be an economist um, and thought law school sounded like a great backup plan, but that I should take a year off in between undergrad and grad school and work at a law office as a paralegal to see what it was really about. And I decided that that law office should be in Jackson, Wyoming, where Harrison Ford lived. And I'd always wanted to learn how to ski. And I knew that Jackson Hole was the most difficult ski. I knew its reputation as the most difficult ski resort in the U.S. And I do like doing things the hard way. So the combination of Han Solo and difficult skiing. Oh, you can't beat that. (laughs) That's a good combo. So you wanted to start skiing, but you set your sights on the hardest place to to start skiing, to learn. Yeah. And I mean, I had been skiing beforehand, but I was queen of the the snowplow. So yes, ski at the the hardest of them all. Very cool. Well, I understand you did a bit of uh, race walking in your, your early years. I couldn't let that one go. I had to hear about it. (laughs) <laughs> obviously i watched your tedx video <laughs> yes race walking i race walking is awesome it's so undersold and <laughs> i back in my glory days as you know 15 16 17 year old race walker i could do a mile so much faster than i can run one now well interesting um yeah, no, it was, and it was great. I mean, so if you've seen my, the TEDx talk, I mean, I think it was really helpful for me as a teenager to be doing things that, you know, everybody else wasn't doing. I think that kind of helped set me up on the path to pursue adventure. I mean, because, I mean, really, if you think about, you know, what adventure is, it can be as simple as, you know, just not doing what the masses are. Right. Um, and I mean, the hundred yard dash is, you know, a shit ton cooler than race walking, <laughs> but <laughs> I think race walking definitely made me part of the person that I am today. Yeah. Well, I gotta be honest. I mean, it wasn't really race walking that, that I wanted to bring that up about. It was about your story about, um, being embarrassed and learning how to be embarrassed and learning how to overcome it and actually embrace it. So would you go into a little bit of that and for the listeners, I'm, I'm referring to a, a TEDx Jackson Hole video. You can find it on YouTube. Uh, it's a good video. I would uh, recommend going and watching it, especially if you're somebody that uh, is battling with uh, having a hard time putting yourself out there and battling with embarrassment. Uh, go watch Dina's video on it. It's actually uh, pretty inspirational in and of itself. So I wanted you to talk a little bit about that and put a little bit of that, of that out for us, if you would. Yeah, so it was... It was interesting, I mean, how that 
TEDx talk, the topic came along. I mean, the my original idea or how the embarrassment came to me was when so many when I had cancer and was going through chemotherapy and had hemorrhoids the size of a golf ball and was with a hemorrhoid pillow everywhere and every time I went out into public, I my nose started bleeding and um, stuff. I mean, it made me realize like. I had to think, okay, do I want to go out to dinner when I know that I'm going to be embarrassed or can I hang out with this friend if I know I'm going to be embarrassed or can I do this if I know I'm going to be embarrassed? And it was the things that I answered, yes, I'm willing to put up with the embarrassment for that. That was when I realized what that helped me realize what I was really doing for myself versus external factors. Um, and that was, I couldn't, I could not develop the Ted talk to get into that depth, but so then I pulled it back and just was, you know, practice embarrassing yourself and get comfortable (laughs) with it. (laughs) And that can make life so much, so much easier. You don't need to get to the point where, you know, it's embarrassment is helping you find your deeper self, but, um, yeah, just take the, the little, the little things. I mean, I was talking to a friend and he, he tried wearing two different socks to work one day, (laughs) which doesn't like for me, like, you know, I do that probably six days a week. (laughs) You just Um, don't care. (laughs) But with, with his, I mean, for his situation and where he is, like that was actually, you know, putting some embarrassment on him. And when he realized like, Oh my God, I did that. And I, didn't die. And, you know, my boss didn't think I was an idiot. Like there were no major consequences. I mean, it was kind of a, a mini revelation for him. And that kind of made me, that made me happy to hear that. Yeah, no doubt. Well, it's actually, it's really good advice. I mean, so many of us start out with, you know, as children being embarrassed about every little thing. We might be embarrassed about our parents. We might be able to be embarrassed about our clothing. I mean, we're just so susceptible to it as kids. And, so many of us as adults have never figured out how to deal with it. And we take that with us into adulthood. And it really kind of, uh, you know, it it, it rang a, a bell with me when I was watching the video. I thought, you know, there are points in my life, you know, as an adult that I do find myself uncomfortable with a situation or embarrassed. And I think the way that you put it all out there on the line, I mean, in some situations, you just had no choice, obviously, but you were, you managed to embrace it. And I thought it was a really good message. I was, I wanted to bring that up on the show. Yeah. And definitely, I mean, so starting that, that talk off the way that I did, I mean, public speaking is not, I mean, it, I don't put it up there with death, but <laughs> it's not something that I'm comfortable, I'm, you know, innately comfortable with. But once you, when you're terrified of singing, and you start off, you know, a public speaking engagement with singing. God, it's all gravy after that. Yeah, that was impressive, actually. You came out uh, singing Amazing Grace. And uh, I thought, it, you know, and you admitted to being a poor singer. And I thought that in and of itself has to have uh, uh, had a lot of, you have had, had a lot of courage to, to do that, just to go out in front of an audience. I mean, most of us would be terrified just to go out and talk to them. Uh, to begin with, but to go out and walk out not comfortable with your singing ability and walk out and sing Amazing Grace for them before they even understand who you are. That's impressive. <laughs> and I was not making myself a worse singer than uh, <laughs> I am. 
It was fun. So I only like practicing the talk. I practiced it plenty of times with my boyfriend and my parents and everything, but I would never practice. I did not do the singing part for anyone. And then at the dress rehearsal, the morning of the talk, um, I was guess they were like, you know, you have to do the, the singing part. And I did it. And um, my boyfriend was like, wow, you really are as bad. <laughs> <laughs> I told you. He was, but then at the, he was like, you managed to get worse for the nighttime performance. So nice. <laughs> well, it was a great way to break the ice. I loved it. Yeah. So you come out singing and you went into a story about um, attempting to, to set the record for the most uh, vertical uh, feet skied by a female in 24 hours. So uh, congratulations for starters. You did set that record. Are you the current record holder still? Um, as So it's vertical feet skied uphill because vertical feet skied downhill yes. would be too normal. True, true. Uphill. That was a, it was a, an important qualifier. Uphill. Okay. Um, and as far as I know, no one else has filed the paperwork to take that Guinness record away from me, but I am... 100% certain that there is a woman out there who has skied more <laughs> vertical feet uphill in 24 hours than I <laughs> Well, it's still an impressive feat. The story that you used while doing that in a story of embarrassment, can you tell that story? Um, yes. So <laughs> this this race, it was skiing up um, Sunlight Basin, which is a ski resort down valley from um, Aspen. It's in Glenwood Springs, Colorado. And each lap was about 1,500 vertical feet. So I would ski up one lap and then um, ski down. And I stopped once after the ninth lap, which was about nine hours in, to have, um, I got really, even though my feet were used to my boots, I get really, really bad blisters. And because I couldn't kind of get my feet hardened up, my husband at the time came up with the idea of injecting my foot with Marcane to just make it, I wouldn't feel the blisters. So I stopped nine hours in for two minutes to have my foot numbed up. And then I went back out and did not stop um, again. Although the top of the very last lap, when I knew that I had the record in the bag, there was a porta potty up there. And having been peeing using this device called a shiwi, where I could pee standing up um, for 24 hours, like that porta potty looked like. A throne. I mean, <laughs> it looked magical. And I was like, okay, I've got the record in the bag at this point. I'm going to treat myself to a trip to the porta potty. And doing this race, I'm wearing a one piece spandex race suit, which, of course, I have to get down around my ankles to go to the bathroom. So I step out of my skis into the porta potty. And there are a crew of race volunteers up there because they're keeping track of all of the racers as they come up and down to make sure that they see them every lap. And so, I mean, some of them have been up there 24 hours volunteering and, you know, we have a bit of a relationship and they've been cheering for me. So I step into the porta potty and I turn around and I'm like struggling to get out of my suit. Um, and I get it kind of down below my knees. And then I go to sit on the porta potty and my legs just collapsed beneath me and I fall to the floor <laughs> kick the door open <laughs> there, there are all the volunteers standing out there and I'm on the floor of a porta potty 
half, well, more than half naked because the suit's down around my ankles. And, um, yeah. In your, in all of your glory. Well, but you didn't, you described not really being embarrassed about that. You actually, in a way, just laughed it off and embraced it. Yeah. Oh, I, I mean, yeah. Like, even if I, I, I think that I didn't have the energy to be embarrassed. And I mean, that was one of those things that even at the time I was, I mean, I mean, you could think, oh God, you know, wow, you've been training for four months to set the world record and you've just set it and, you know, and you're on the floor of a porta potty half naked. Right. right. <laughs> I mean, talk about deflating, <laughs> deflating your, you know, ego balloon or whatever. <laughs> well, it taught you to learn to roll with the punches, I'm sure. And oh, definitely. Yeah. And that was part of it. I mean, the reason I bring all of this up and the same reason you brought all that up is because you dealt with a lot more things, you know, later in life um, that you you couldn't help but to have to embrace being embarrassed. And what I'm talking about is, you know, you got diagnosed with multiple sclerosis at first and then um, ultimately with stage three breast cancer. So there were moments in life when you just, you had issues you had to deal with, like being on the airplane, talking about, you know, needing to move away while you uh, needed to have your mask on um, to keep your immune system intact, things like that. Can you go into that, uh, into a little bit of detail on that and experiences that you've had? Um, that you had to use these skills that you've learned to overcome this embarrassment for? Yeah, I mean, it was with with um, cancer and particularly while going through chemotherapy. Um, I mean, I early on, so I got, I did six rounds of it and it was um, one round every three weeks if my blood tests allowed and they they always did. So I guess I was fortunate <laughs> and that I was able to stay on schedule. But, um, I mean, I started it thinking that, okay, this is, you know, going to be five months of my life where I don't do anything. But then kind of after, after I had gotten the second round, when I was kind of still in the, the crap of like feeling really bad from it, I was like, you know, I need, I need things to like, I'm an adventurous person. I can't have five months of, of nothing. Like I need things to look forward to. Right. I um, came up with rewarding myself for every round of chemo with a trip somewhere. Um, and it was, you know, yeah, I knew it was going to be, there were going to be some embarrassments that happened, but otherwise, you know, if I, if I didn't do that, I would just hole up in my, I wouldn't, you know, be me anymore. It wouldn't be my life. I'd be hiding out in my, in my house. Um, so kind of that was, I mean, I guess even though I didn't know what the what the particulars of various embarrassments or challenges would be, like I I made the choice like, okay, I'm putting myself out there and saw that regardless of any embarrassments or whatever came of it, that was more um, that was better for me than sitting at home doing nothing. Um, so, I mean, I had everything from. I mean, one of the ones that I talked about in my TED talk was because chemo kills your immune system. I mean, I was like the queen of the, the handy wipes and I was traveling wearing a face mask. Um, and as soon as I would sit down in a seat, I would, you know, scrub everything around me with an antibacterial wipe and a mom and a kid um, were sitting near me and I asked to be moved and... Um, 
the mom got uh, upset and called me a germaphobic bitch. And wow. because I didn't, I didn't look sick. Um, and I think that a lot of, a lot of the embarrassments I think actually came from that. I mean, if I was, was bald and probably wasn't boarding a plane for Spain or, <laughs> or something, right. like people would have, you know, maybe been a little bit less judgmental or, I mean, I don't know if judgmental is the right word, but imagining, you know, they would have probably guessed that I had cancer or something and would have been, you know, not calling me a germaphobic bitch. Right. Well, I think that story really you know, kind of smacks you in the face because I think we're all guilty at some point in, in our lives, maybe some more than others, uh, for taking, you know, instant judgments, you know, on people and not really... Having the inability to put your your shoes or your feet in their shoes, but you know, not realizing that there are a million other reasons why somebody could be doing something or why somebody is somewhere um, and into the situation that they're in. So, you know, when I heard your story, you know, I really had to you know step back and think, okay, you know, who have I judged in life, and and what might they have been doing? Like, what might their situation have been? So, I think. I like that you bring it up. I mean, it's something really important for, for us as humans to think about. Yeah. I mean, I think one of the biggest lessons I've learned in, in life is everyone has their own shit going on. Right. Don't, you don't know what it is, but everyone has it. Um, and I can't say that that stopped me from, you know, doing to inwardly doing to others what that woman did to me. But on my best days, I remember that, Everyone has their own crap going on. Yeah, exactly. Well, it's part of human nature and it's something we all have to, to work on. But it's uh, to hear a story like that, it makes you think, okay, maybe next time I'll, I'll cut that person a break. You never know what's really going on. Founded and operated in Colorado, Catabatic Gear is driven by the premise that ultralight backpacking equipment should be made lighter through innovative design and advanced materials, not by simply stripping components. With intuitive features and the best, most advanced materials, Catabatic Gear's sleeping bags, backpacks, and accessories strike the perfect balance between ultralight weights and ultimate comfort that will change the way you think about backpacking. If you are considering lightening the load on your next backpacking trip, check out some of their award-winning gear at catabaticgear.com. That's K-A-T-A-B-A-T-I-C gear.com. Coming up next week, I've got George Karunas, the storm chaser, back on the show. He's got more volcano stories for us, and he's got a little bit of information about a plan to get to North Korea to do some hiking. You're not going to want to miss that one. So let's talk about um, you being an athlete and finding out first about the multiple sclerosis. I don't know when you were diagnosed with MS, um, but I think you are already in, you know, you're an adventurous person. So what was that like uh, to find out that news? Um, at Like I had no inkling what MS was at the time I got the diagnosis when I <laughs> When I was growing up, I participated in the MS Readathon at my elementary school every year. 
and um, being a big reader, I would get to go to an awards banquet at the end of this event where I got to meet real people with MS that my reading was helping. And like my only memory of that were lots of people in wheelchairs. So, I mean, when I got the news, I mean, my first thing was that, you know, my first vision was wheelchair. And because so much of life in Jackson revolves around the ability to to physically do things my next thought was like well, I'm gonna lose all of my friends because I'm not gonna be able to go skiing with them or biking with them um but then I started learning more about MS and that you know a wheelchair was not necessarily my future um but it did I mean it gave me it took the part of my personality that was already kind of type A and aggro and made it even more so in that I can do this now. I'm going to do this now. I might not be able to do it next summer. I mean, chances were I'd be able to do it next summer, but just to be safe, you know, I'm going to do it now. Um, so I started, yeah, I just started doing lots of even more things than I already was. Yeah. I can imagine. Let's, let's embrace this thing and, uh, and do what we can with it. So I think it was, and I said, I didn't know when you were diagnosed, but it was, you were about 30 years old when that happened. And then later, um, 39 years old, you found out the news about the breast cancer. So you had already been dealing with the MS part and, and, uh, in, you know, with what you just described, you know, having to embrace it and, and go ahead and continue on with life and do what you needed to do to satisfy your craving for adventure. So, now you're diagnosed with breast cancer, you know, and this is getting more serious. Uh, these are two serious blows in life. So how is that? How did that come about and how did that affect you? Um, I mean, do you want the, the details of how the diagnosis came about or are you more kind of the after effects? Well, I mean, one, how did you learn about it? Um, where did it put you mentally knowing again that you're, you want to be skiing? You want you have a whole group of friends in Jackson Hole. They're all doing these activities, you know, that are inherent to you know this type of, of region. Um, so how does where does that put you in a mindset again? You know, like the same thing you dealt with with the, uh, the MS. Well, it was like I mean I never I never thought about of the possibility of cancer killing me until at least a year and a half after my diagnosis um or no maybe not it was it was sooner than that but like at the time of the diagnosis and going through chemo like the thought of death was not on me it was more chemo is making me sick I mean Mm -hmm. The diagnosis came, I mean, two weeks before I was diagnosed, I um, did the Cactus to Clouds Trail, which is a 24-mile hike that climbs up 8,000 feet in Palm Springs. Um, I did it by myself in one push, you know, at a fairly decent clip. And, you know, then two months after that, I have cancer. I'm getting chemo, and it hurts to walk up my stairs. Like, I don't have the energy for that. I mean, it was just so... It was so surreal to go from, you know, being so healthy to then being sick from this medication because it was cancer never, the cancer itself never made me feel sick or hurt me. It was all the treatment for cancer. Yeah, I bet. 
yeah here it's absolutely terrible that was was getting me um but interestingly what the cancer diagnosis did was um tamper what ms had done to me a little bit in that it's not it made me think of not just doing things but the quality of doing things where ms i was like you know doing i mean i never had any downtime which never occurred to me um but it was i was just racing from one thing to the next and it wasn't to the point where i was just doing things to say that i did them because i was doing them for the experience of doing them but at the same time like i didn't have any there wasn't time to kind of savor it or reflect or think back on it it was just going from one kind of adventure or activity to the next and then cancer kind of reined me in a little bit and made me kind of prioritize and like sometimes and it taught me sometimes the greatest adventure can be laying on a couch on my deck in the sunshine yeah right (laughs) as cheesy as that sounds um because that was something that I never did before. Um, yeah. So it forced you to kind of simplify life to make, make the important things stand out and maybe drop by the wayside. Some of the, the less important things that you didn't recognize. Yeah. And one, one realization that I had that, um, made me really happy was that, um, when the thought occurred to me that I might die from cancer, um, was that there was nothing in my life that I wanted to change. I was living the life mm. that I wanted to. I mean, I've got, I, I would love to meet someone who has no regrets in life. They'd either be the most interesting person or the most annoying person. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's true. Um, I mean, so I certainly have regrets, but just kind of the overall way that I'm living my life, like the things that I'm doing, the people that I'm friends with, the work that I do, I mean, it's all, I'm doing it because I have made the choice and I want to do, do it. And that was a real, I mean, I had thought that that was the case before cancer, you know, that I was living the life I wanted to, but I mean, that's one of those things that you don't really know until I think the shit hit the fan. (laughs) And so it was nice to, to realize that, what I had suspected all along was the case. In fact. Yeah. I think, uh, I mean, I don't wish, I don't wish cancer or any ailment like that on anybody, but at the same time, you know, and a lot of, a lot of times in the bad, there is buried some good. And I think that if everybody could have that, uh, piece of the, of the puzzle to, to realize what's really important and what things they can let go that really aren't important. Um, that if we could figure out how to bottle that and hand it out to people, you know, we'd all be millionaires. Well, and the world would be a much better place. <laughs> no doubt about that. Well, much happier place. Yeah. What I was really impressed with was your ability to keep up with your adventurous lifestyle while going through chemo and dealing with this. Um, you kept skiing and you kept climbing. And I mean, there were stories of, of, climbing and just having nosebleeds, you know, and just having to deal with them and keep going. So tell me a little bit about that. I mean, obviously that is not to be taken lightly. You're, you're obviously a very strong woman type A personality. Um, that has a lot to do with it, but 
this is not easy stuff we're talking about. I mean, so many people wouldn't even have the ability to do what you've been doing and and are healthy generally, but you've managed to continue to do this stuff while having chemo. So tell me about that a little bit. Um, my boyfriend and I often have discussions about the fine line between stubbornness and perseverance. <laughs> um, and for me, I mean, I, it was important to me to keep doing those things because I define myself so much by my physicality and then also, I mean, just moving in the out of doors is, is my therapy. It's where my sanity comes from. Um, and so I knew from the, I mean, from the point of my diagnosis that keeping as much of you know, my athletic outdoor stuff going as I could was going to be instrumental to my emotional and mental well-being through through chemo. And it was, I mean, it was, you know, tampon staunch nosebleeds really, really well. <laughs> That's what they're meant for. Maybe not in the nose, but <laughs> they're absorbent, right? Yeah. Um, so, and again, it was kind of just, I mean, that was you know, doing, doing things outside was more about kind of figuring out ways to overcome annoyances like constant nosebleeds or, I mean, I was so, um, my levels, uh, my hematocrit and my blood count was so low at one point. I did end up needing to get a transfusion of blood to get my counts up where they needed to be. Um, but like when I went into the ER, for that they were like you know how have you been climbing upstairs much less mount glory which is a hike that i did up a mountain with skis on my back 1800 feet that i did every morning before chemo um so they were it was more about kind of yeah wrapping my head around slowing down so that it was kind of back to that savoring this experience a little bit i mean being outside and being slow is better than not being outside at all yeah, absolutely. What did your doctors think about you climbing 1,800 feet and skiing down before your chemo appointment each time? I mean, they all, like all the neurologists that I've seen for MS and the different cancer doctors, I mean, they're all, they're all like, you know, we've never seen, seen a patient like you. <laughs> but at the same time, they all say, I mean, I'm doing really, really well with MS. And as crappy as I thought chemo was, evidently it can be much, much crappier. Um, and as bad as my recovery from the double mastectomy was, I actually did really, really well with it. And all of my doctors agree, and they say that it was because I'm because I've stayed fit that things were not worse. I mentioned the, uh, I imagine the mental fitness has a lot to do with it as well. I mean, obviously the physical fitness of, you know, keeping in shape and, and helping your body deal with it um, is a lot, but the, just simply being mentally there and having the ability to kind of power through it, you know, in your mind has got to factor in. Um. Yeah, definitely. And I mean, I, I used to joke in, in the past when, you know, I would be out for a, a backcountry ski tour and like 10 or 12 hours into it, we were still going and like things had gone sideways and 
you know, my body would be completely tired, but, you know, whoever my partner and I would joke, we're like, this is, you know, training for suffering for, you know, training for mental toughness. And I think that's actually kind of true. (laughs) I've definitely, I've trained myself to kind of push through things. And my experience has taught me that, you know, pushing through, I've always, I've always gotten through it. So that there was always light at the end of the tunnel. And I know that that isn't always necessarily the case, but my experience so far, my experience has trained me that, you know, to expect that. Yeah, absolutely. I can imagine. So after this, I mean, you're, you're cancer free, right? Happy to say. Um, yes, most likely. I mean, we, we all know there's, there's always the chance it can return, but I mean, you were, you kind of came out the other side of it and, and things are good. You're still dealing with the, the MS, um, and you always will be, um, what I want to know is how did it change that experience? How has it changed your adventure? Um, the way you, you see things, you feel things, meaning when you're out there on a mountaintop, you're out there skiing, are things different for you? Um, I'm happy to say that they're not that different. Um, because, and that, I mean, and I'm happy to say that because that means that I was already appreciative of Mm. them and savoring the moment beforehand. Interesting. Um, so I, I mean, I guess maybe the, I savor and appreciate more, but, um, yeah, they have, it hasn't changed that much because I think I was coming from a really good starting point. I mean, I don't know what my parents did when they, you know, in their raising me, but something like something taught me early on to appreciate and, and savor things. And that's just something I've always had. And, um, if I think if I didn't have it, these experiences definitely would have taught me that, but it was nice to kind of go into them already with that under my belt. Yeah. That's really interesting. Uh, the obvious answer you would expect uh, somebody to say is, you know, basically, yes, things are, are more vibrant. Things smell much better. I can slow down and, and really, uh, appreciate where I am, but you know, coming from that perspective, that's interesting that, uh, it wasn't a drastic change for you. Yeah. I mean, I would say I am, I am trying to, um, I mean, I'm, I'm such a type A, like I'm at the point where I'm writing in my calendar, like sit on the couch for 20 minutes and read a book. (laughs) (laughs) So I'm, I'm trying to teach myself how to have some downtime and how to enjoy it. I mean, like, I could, you know, always lock myself in a room with nothing to do for 20 minutes, but, you know, be hating every minute of it. So, I mean, I am trying to teach myself to enjoy, you know, things that aren't all aggro or traveling around the world. Um, but I don't know, I, I don't know that that's so much because of cancer or more just that's really good for your overall health. Yeah, no doubt <laughs> about that. Slow down. Yeah. Yep. Well, before I go on further to China and South Korea uh, and the Grand Canyon trip, I want to hear about, and even maybe a little bit of a cow chip tossing championship information. (laughs) Um, (laughs) I want to talk about books. Um, I noticed that you had a couple of books in the works. And to point out, you're a writer, um, editor. I don't know if I mentioned that in the intro, but um, you have a lot of uh, 
a lot of involvement in, in newspapers, magazines, um, travel writing, that kind of stuff. Um, you have, you've been working on some books from what I see. Can you, you want to plug those a little bit? I mean, sure. it didn't really prime you for this necessarily, but yeah, no, I thought um, I would bring them up. So much for the chance. Um, so the first book that I have, um, coming out in the near future is 20 easy day hikes in Jackson hole. Um, and that book was awesome to write because there are not 20 easy day hikes in Jackson. <laughs> so if you pick up this book, you will find a 14 mile hike that climbs 4,300 feet. It's all a relative, isn't it? <laughs> it is. So in the intro, and as I, you know, as the, I was talking with the editor before I signed the contract to do this, I was like, you know, you have to understand, Jackson, like the Tetons don't have foothills. Everything goes straight up. Right. Um, and so I came up with the definition of an easy day hike was um, the easiest hike for what it got you. So instead of putting the hike up the South Teton, which, you know, is a 12 to 15 hour affair over lots of scree and it's a long day. Um, but it gets you onto the summit of a Teton with beautiful views. Instead of doing that hike, I did Table Mountain, which is the 14 miler that climbs 4,300 feet. Um, but there's a trail and it also takes you to a beautiful Teton summit. So compared to the South Teton, it's easy. <laughs> but for most people, my mom included, when she, I had her copy edit uh, an early draft of the book and she called me afterwards and she's like, do you think? Table Mountain is something that I could do. And I was so happy that she asked me that. And I was like, okay, we're going to come up with the training program. Who <laughs> <laughs> should be a training program. It's supposed to be an easy hike. <laughs> Maybe I not. Don't want to that's funny. Um, so that's book number one. And that should be coming out probably in, I think, May of 2017. So next month. Uh, and then the second one, which I just finished in January and is coming out in January of 2018 is called Road Trips Greater Yellowstone. And this one was really fun because each chapter is one of the five entrances of Yellowstone. And then I have a 100-ish mile radius going out from each of the entrances going out of the park. And then I found the publisher is kind of selling it as part guidebook, part coffee table book. Um, so rather than telling people, you know, where to stay or what to do or about museums, I just found people who I in all of my writing, I love using people as windows into places. Mm -hmm. So I just found people in all of these different communities around Yellowstone that um, were really great windows into their communities. And at the same time, you know, happened to be the curator of the National Museum of Wildlife Art in Jackson. So it, you know, introduces readers to someone who's really interesting and then kind of gives them something that they can act on and go stop at the museum too. Oh, that sounds cool. It's a couple of good guidebooks to check out. And like you said, they're not quite available. Um, next month, the uh, Jackson Hole book should be available. And then you got a little while on the Yellowstone book, right? Yep. January 2018. Okay. And I did see at least uh, Amazon has uh, links in there for both of them. So they do show both of them coming up. So I'll put those links in our show notes and, uh, and point people to them if they're interested in, in checking either one of those out. So I also wanted to point out that you have been writing a column. I don't know if you're still writing it, but you've been writing a column about your experiences with the cancer. Um, it's called The C Word, and that's in one of the Jackson Hole newspapers? Yep. Um, the Jackson Hole News and Guide. 
Okay. And are you still writing that? No, I, my last one was, um, when I had my final reconstructive surgery, uh, in last June. Okay. Well, I did want to point it out because if we have people in the audience that, you know, want to get a little bit more insight, um, you know, on cancer and, and dealing with it and kind of the ups and downs with it, or, you know, maybe people, you know, need to learn about cancer because they have a family member or somebody that has cancer themselves. Uh, it, I was reading some uh, articles in it and it's a uh, very good writing. It's uh, I like the way that you, you're able to address it head on, but at the same time, it's, it's not, this is not downer information. You know, this is just real life and it's interesting to see it through your eyes. So I wanted to point that out. I will go find the link, um, to those articles and put those in the show notes as well. Yeah, there is actually the news and guide has, um, one page that kind of has an archive of all of the columns. So there's a link for that. Okay. Very cool. Yeah. I'll go find that. Absolutely. Bentgate Mountaineering located in Golden, Colorado has been outfitting backcountry travelers for the last 20 years. Spring has sprung, but there's still a lot of great skiing in the backcountry, and it's prime time to check out the latest in alpine touring, telemark, NTN, and split boarding gear. Bentgate carries the premier brands including Black Crows, DPS, Dinafit, G3, Icelandic, K2, Rocky Mountain Underground, Rosignol, Solomon, Voli, Never Summer, and Jones. With more people in the backcountry than ever, it's crucial to be prepared. Bentgate has the latest in avalanche safety gear from beacons to airbags. Come in and they will set you up with a proper gear and point you in the right direction to educate yourself on snow safety. If you don't own the gear, Bentgate offers a full range of rental and demo equipment, including the latest skis, boots, split boards, beacons, shovels, and probes. Bentgate also hosts free demo ski days at local resorts to give you a hands-on opportunity to ride the latest gear. Be sure to check bentgate.com for their full product selection as well as updates on all of their events. All right. Now I alluded to, well, first of all, before Grand Canyon, we have to talk about cow chip tossing. <laughs> where, where, where in the world does this come from? And I, I, it sounds like you ranked fairly well in the cow chip tossing championship. Um, I was third. <laughs> Congratulations. Thank you. And I mean, that was off the couch. Imagine if I had done some serious training. Training. Yeah, I know. I mean, man, you would have been first, first place, no doubt. Oh, I don't know. You didn't see the woman who got first, <laughs> but second, definitely. So um, what is cow chip tossing and how does one get involved in such a thing? Or do you have to live in Wyoming to be involved? Oh, no. I traveled to Oklahoma for the event. <laughs> Sweet. <laughs> do tell. Oklahoma. <laughs> um, I have a great um, partner in crime from college who lives in Oklahoma and is wonderful at coming up with ideas that are as harebrained as mine often are. And he suggested that we travel to Beaver, Oklahoma uh, and compete. And we each flew to Denver separately, rented a car there and took off for Beaver. Hmm. And um, yeah, 
you went and competed and, and threw cow chips. So what is the point of cow chip tossing? What is the goal? Um, the, I mean, the, how the winner is measure, measured by who throws it the farthest. Um, and I think that the meaning of it, the purpose of it is that there might not might be much else to do in some areas. <laughs> this is what we got to do. <laughs> so is this like a, like a discus throw or a shot blow or baseball? How, how does one throw a cow chip? To its well, maximum it's, distance. I think that's where, had I trained, mm. perhaps I could have learned learned something. There were definitely different techniques, and I think the the integrity of the cow chip, the structural engineering of the particular cow chip, um, some of them are are can handle the discus throw or the frisbee throw. Actually, um, I think the frisbee throw is more successful, but perhaps harder to do than the discus. <laughs> Um, yeah. And then the shot put, I think any cow chip can handle that, but you just have no chance of winning with that. Well, I got to say when we, uh, conceived the idea for the show, never once did I put on a piece of paper, have a discussion about tossing cow chips. But what's funny is my co-host Kurt is from Oklahoma. So I might have to push his buttons a little bit on that. That's not a conversation we've had. So I'm wondering if maybe he's had a few competitions that he hasn't let me in on yet. You should you should look into that. I mean, I'm assuming if if Beaver is the world championship, I mean, you didn't have to qualify to go, but I would imagine, I would hope that there are some practice events beforehand. I would think. Well, I might have to yeah. go check one of these out myself uh, mm -hmm. and watch or take gloves, I guess, maybe if I want to compete. <laughs> okay, so let's uh, maybe hit a few highlights here. So Western China, you had a trip out to Western China. What'd you do yeah. out there? Um, I climbed really high on a really tall mountain and then decided I wasn't having fun and <laughs> went down to base camp and had the best two days of my life while the rest of the climbing team was suffering up at 23 and 24,000 feet and they didn't make it to the summit either. <laughs> wow. So you didn't, you didn't like it. First of all, what were you climbing? So the name of the peak is, um, Mustagata. Okay. And it's billed as the world's easiest 7,500 meter peak. Really? Um, yes. But really, there's no such thing as an easy 7,500 meter peak. Yeah, exactly. That was my thought. <laughs> I, was like, I guess everything's relative, but. Uh... Um, yes. And my um, my goals, but it's not it's not technical. I mean, there there's a lot of walking on snow, but no ice falls mm -hmm. or anything. Um, and it's possible to ski from the summit. So the ski descent would be like 10,000 vertical feet. Wow. That'd be cool. Um, so that's what I was interested in. Um, but somewhere around camp three, it was camp two, somewhere around 21, 22,000 feet. Like it was, had I thought, I mean, and to do this mountain kind of required expedition climbing style, the way the group that I was with was doing an expedition climbing style, which is, you know, you're hanging out at base camp at 15 to 16,000 feet. You know, you walk up 1500 feet the next day, come down, walk up 2000 feet the next day, spend the night up there, come down. I mean, it's just kind of up and down, up and down, repetitive stuff. And you're trying to go as slow as possible because you don't want to, I mean, your, your body is trying to acclimatize. Yeah, a lot of acclimatization. Yeah. And had I spent a nanosecond thinking about the logistics of expedition climbing, like this going slow, <laughs> and, uh, like I would have known that it was so not my cup of 
risky, <laughs> but it was kind of, yeah, it was an adventure that a friend had put on my radar um, several years before. And it was kind of, it was one of those things where MS thinking was prevailing and I want to do this. I can do this now. Um, so I'm going to do this now. Um, but the idea had kind of taken over without me thinking what was behind it. Um, so, and I just, I wasn't having, I also had a horrible stomach bug, which never helps up at altitude. No, I wouldn't think so. Um, but even after I recovered from that, like I just, I would be up on the mountain looking down at base camp and it was just this beautiful rolling meadow at 15,000 feet and there were nothing on it but yaks and a sea of wildflowers. And I would just see it stretching in all directions and every once in a while, like you'd see some kind of lake that was hit. I mean, it was an undul it was undulating. So you could see like a lake hiding in, in a crevice or something. And finally, I was like, you know, I'd much rather be running down around, you know, this plateau that the base camp is on, exploring that than, you know, going up and down this stupid mountain. <laughs> yeah, I hear you. I, I can I can put myself in your shoes and uh, and be of the same mind frame there. Instead of doing the expedition climbing up to twenty four thousand feet, I can I can see myself having much more fun doing that myself. Yeah, and I was, I, as silly as it sounds, I was really proud of myself for making the decision to not go, right. not go to the summit. Mm -hmm. And I was like, as soon as it dawned on me, like, I'm not having fun. To have fun, I want to be doing this. And, okay, who cares if I have to come home and tell everyone I didn't make the summit? I don't care. I want to go explore this base plant plateau. Well, it was actually my first thought when you said that. I mean, we've talked about, you know, your uh, type A personality and, and wanting to rise above, and, you know, and continue. And then for you to to take on something like that and realize that's just not your cup of tea, I'm going to turn around and go have more fun elsewhere and not have to conquer that thing everybody else is trying to conquer. That, that says something. Yeah. Yeah. I felt, I felt I did a lot of growing up in that moment. <laughs> no doubt. <laughs> Okay, so what I want to, the story I want to finish up on is I saw that you had done the rim to rim to rim in Grand Canyon. And this is while you were dealing, going through the, the chemo treatment, which uh, was, you know, this is not a, a small hike. This is not a small feat. And especially in the temperatures that, that you can see in the Grand Canyon. So tell me a little bit about that. What drove you to go do it? And then tell me a little bit about the experience of actually doing it? Um, well, so I did not, um, I did not do it during chemo. I did it, um, six weeks after my final reconstructive surgery. Okay. So, well, okay. <laughs> there's so a little what, bit of difference there. <laughs> I get it. There's, there's, there's actually a lot. Is there? <laughs> Man, I would, when I read, I was thinking, you know, this is a major feat, you know, having come through all of this, um, to still do this. I mean, like I said, you know, many of us would, would look at something like this and just think, you know, I'm perfectly healthy and not having gone through it. I mean, your body still had to be de depleted from going through that, I would think, but maybe not. I mean, were you at full health at that point? I mean, I, so, I mean, I did not tell my doctor that I was doing this. I wasn't <laughs> supposed to, to hike more than five miles until eight weeks after surgery. Okay. See, the doctor backs me up. <laughs> um, but it wasn't like I was in any pain. I okay. mean, there was no pain or, or anything. Um, and then also I did not actually do rim to rim to rim 
And that is another thing that I'm proud of myself for because I realized that it was a stupid idea. (laughs) (laughs) What made it stupid? (laughs) Well, so um, the first time I did Rim to Rim to Rim was um, right before I was diagnosed with MS or right after I was, right after I was diagnosed with MS. Um, and it, when I, when I did the hike and so it's, it's 42 miles, I think it's 13,000 vertical feet of up and down. Down is actually what hurts my legs a lot more than the up. Um, and it was, I mean, it's a, it's a really difficult hike, especially if you're doing it all at, all at once and not really stopping. But when I, um, when I finished it that first time after I'd been diagnosed with MS, I mean, I just felt like I could conquer the world and it gave, it gave me hope that, you know, I'm going to, MS isn't going to get me in a wheelchair. Like I'm going to get, get through this. Right. And then, um, the next time I did rim to rim to rim was after I, um, my husband and I got divorced and again, like after I finished it, I was just, I could conquer the world. I mean, anything, anything was possible. And, um, my boyfriend and I were living in Flagstaff last summer and he had never been to the Grand Canyon and he actually, he's not into the, he's into, you know, taking three days to enjoy this hike rather than busting through it all in 12 hours or whatever. Um, so we weren't going to do it together, but, um, it was like, it's something that I thought that it was a nice kind of bookend to, it was kind of my, yeah, the bookend to my, my cancer journey. I don't like using journey, but you know, the cancer chapter. The chapter. It, it was the end of the end of that. Um, and the first weekend that we were down in Flagstaff, we hiked to the bottom of the canyon and back up. And hiking back up was, it, I did not know that I was going to make it until I was actually stepping back onto the top of the canyon rim. It was so, excuse me, flipping hot. Yeah. And heat exacerbates MS. Oh, joy. So it just brings on fatigue and I get random symptoms like muscles spasming and eyesight getting a little wonky. Um, so, uh, I was like, maybe a rim to rim to rim isn't the smartest thing. Uh, and I just thought that that was, I mean, kind of like saying no to the summit of, of Mustagata, realizing that, um, it was a great idea, but now was not the time for it. So maybe I'll come back in October. Yeah, no doubt. And and do it again. Yeah. Well, it sounds like a cool. I I didn't realize that's something that somebody you know, that people did. It was the the rim to rim to rim. So I read a little bit of it. Obviously, missed that you weren't uh, you weren't going through chemo at the time. But you know, taking nothing away. I mean, obviously, you're dealing with uh, with the MS while doing it. Um, it doesn't seem like a an easy stroll by any means. I've never been down to the bottom of the Grand Canyon. I've only seen it from, from the outer rims. Yeah. It's a pretty, it's a pretty magical place. And, um, so I did have, so the, the article that you probably read was the one where I start off, I'm like crying sitting right above right. the, the Colorado river. And that was probably the time where the thought that cancer might kill, even in this, at this point, like it's after, you know, this is supposed to be the final test of my cancer 
you know, getting out of graduating from it. Um, and that was probably when the idea that I could die of cancer hit me mm. hardest. Um, just, it's such a special place down there. And I've, I've been down there. It's such important moments in my life. Um, I mean, I was just, you know, am I ever going to be able to get down here again or what craziness is going to be going on in my life <laughs> the next time that I feel compelled to. <laughs> right. <laughs> let, let me come down here <laughs> when nothing crazy is going on and just right. enjoy it. I can imagine. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's a beautiful place. I was just there. Oh, I don't know. Four weeks ago, maybe on the, the South rim looking down in there. And each time I look down in there, I just think one of these days I need to book enough time where I can get down in there and really enjoy it for a few nights and, so yeah. it's on the list for sure. Yeah, you should definitely try to um, stay at Phantom Ranch. Yeah, I was. I read briefly. I it didn't. Uh, I didn't. I skimmed the article. Um, but Phantom Ranch. Tell me a little bit about that. So that um, it's the only place that you can stay anywhere in the bottom of the Grand Canyon. It was built by um, a female architect who did quite a few buildings for the National Park Service in the early 1900s. And it's just these individual cabins. I mean, it's not fancy at all, but it is um, the single most difficult reservation to get in the entire National Park Service really? system. Like they open up reservations for it 13 months in advance at seven o'clock in the morning. And if like you're not on the phone, then like you're not getting a reservation. Wow. Um, but when I was there, I was like, God, when people are planning 13 months out, there have to be people that cancel. Um so I looked into that, and sure enough, there are 48 hours in advance. You can have a good chance of getting a canceled cabin. Well, if you so, take the chance and, uh, I guess, take a tent down with you in case you don't make it, but okay. uh, take the chance, you might actually get a cabin at Phantom Ranch. That's pretty cool. I'll have to check that out. Yep. Totally mm -hmm. worth it. Very cool. All right. Parting shot. Um, certainly, as I alluded to, certainly there are people in the audience um, that are maybe going through something similar. And maybe need to hear words of inspiration. So what would your words of inspiration to people be um, after having been somebody that's gone through this and, and come out the other side with such a strong outlook on life and ability to persevere? Um, man, that's a really tough question. No one's asked me that before. Um, yeah, do, don't do things because other people want, want you to. I mean, for me, like doing the things that I did to get through cancer, that was what was right for me. But I've certainly met people who what was right for them was holding up in their house for six months. I mean, what I did was the right way for me. So I don't want to, I don't want to be telling people, you know, go out there and hike up mountains when you've got cancer because that, that isn't for, for everyone. Um, well, I think, uh, yeah, I think that's enough. I think that that says it, you know, it's, you have to do what you have to do for yourself to get through it. And whatever that might be, you know, is, is what you need at the time. Just recognize it. You yeah. Know, I mean, I guess with yourself. The, the heart, that's the thing. Like you've got to be honest with yourself and recognize what, what it is that you need when your shit is hitting the fan. Right. Right. Well, well said. Yeah. <laughs> 
All right, Dina. Well, your story is amazing. Um, I'm glad you came on and, and, and gave us a little bit of time to to tell us about it. We're all about inspiration, and obviously, yours is an inspirational story. Um, it's fascinating to me to to watch what you've done and and what you've accomplished. And I'm sure you'll go on to do uh, many other things that will provide inspiration for for many others. So, thank you for your time and congratulations on uh, persevering. Hey, Travis. Thank you so much. It was great to chat with you. Oh, I had a blast. Thank you. All right. Hey, if you've been enjoying the Adventure Sports Podcast, do me a favor, go over to iTunes or Stitcher and leave us a rating and a review. It always helps. Join us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram as well. And if you're not yet a member of the ASP Member Deal site, go check it out. It's members.adventuresportspodcast.com. It's a way for you guys to help support the show while you're getting great content, but you also get some great deals at the same time. So check it out. Thanks for listening, and until the next episode, get out and try something new.